0: Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and uplifting backdrop of the end of the world. This week, my special guest is Aaron Duff. Aaron is a singer-songwriter from North Shields who writes and performs both solo and with his band under the moniker Hector Gannett. His debut album Big Harkar was released in October 2020 and new album The Land Belongs To Us is out in January next year. Aaron, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hey, kids! it's
1: lovely to be on board, I'm very excited.
0: (laughs) Well thanks very much for coming on, I've been a fan of yours for a little while. In fact, actually Hector Gannett was my first gig after coming out of lockdown. That was my first foray of into feeling, oh, do I dare go back to gigs? Because I, I go to quite a lot of gigs, but I hadn't been for almost two years. So thanks for that. That was a great night.
1: Uh, it was brilliant, yeah. It seems like kind of, we're totally back to normal now in that respect, but for a long time it was kind of... Rightly so everyone was really very wary about things, weren't they? So it was an odd place to be as a gigging musician, you know. Uh, it was good. I remember The Exchange being really a memorable gig. So
0: Before we talk... A lot about Hector Gannett and your music. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your background, where you come from, and and when your connections to the natural world started.
1: Yeah, well, I'm from North Shields on Tyneside. I've always lived here, I've grown up here, and obviously being right next to the coast. But we're lucky in this part of the world, really, that we can just kind of escape into the natural world relatively easily. You know, I think during COVID, that was one of the hardest things for a lot of people that they couldn't get outside. But we were lucky it's kind of on my doorstep here you know and uh, my background i suppose as a musician i've been playing music since i was at school and in terms of the natural world i think i've always had that kind of interest in anything like that i'm not particularly that knowledgeable about sort of wildlife and stuff i just kind of enjoy it you know but that enthusiasm has always been sort of instilled So my family background, sort of traditionally, they were all sort of fisher people from North Shields. So there's a big fishing industry, or there was a big fishing industry in North Shields, and that's basically why all my family were here, really. So I've always felt a kind of real connection to the area, just because they've always lived here, and no one's ever really moved away (laughs) more than about ten miles from North Shields. You know, in fact, I'm sitting in my house here, and like all the all the streets around us. I can kind of map out my ancestry within like a few streets, you know, it's a bizarre thing really. But uh, I like that, you know what I mean? That's kind of, I like knowing where I come from and I'm I'm proud of it. So,
0: Yeah, you've, you've definitely got roots, haven't you? And, and those roots that go way back and connected to a particular industry in an area obviously means a lot to you. And your stage name has a bird in it, <laughs> but isn't directly named after a bird, is it?
1: Not particularly. I suppose in, inadvertently it kind of is. It was named after a, a trawler that my grandfather was was on in the in the 60s. And at the time, it was being used as a it was like a support vessel for for gas and oil rigs when that was kicking off in the North Sea in the 60s. And uh, all the crew were actually fishermen from North Shields, but working you know in, in a different kind of line. But uh, there was a big blowout on a rig called I think it was called the Hewitt A platform, which was just off stuff. And the Hector Gannett like was kind of tasked with trying to get, get all the workers off the rig. And it was in the time before sort of health and safety, as we know it now. And they ran into difficulty, basically, in bad weather and ended up hitting the rig, trying to get blokes off, and it capsized and sank. Um, And there was three, three of the crew lost, actually, on the day, but my granddad survived. And that's a story that's always been, like, around the family. Well, I mean, growing up, the whole family was full of, like, Brave Stories from the Sea, you know what I mean? Like That was kind of like what it was all about. So I think naming the, the project, I was going to say band, but it's I kind of do solo stuff and with the band under the same name, it was a way of kind of nodding a tip of a hat to that side of us, you know, um, that I was really proud of. But it all kind of started when my last band fell to bits and I didn't really know what I was going to do because all I really do is play music, you know what I mean? I've never really been that good at anything else, so... I was kind of stuck for what to do when I stumbled across this footage, this archive footage of fishermen in the fifties in North Shields of trawlermen, And it happened to have my grandparents in. Oh wow. It was actually like a time tease documentary that was made in the late 50s. And it follows the Ben Talk was the the trawler. So it, it actually follows my granddad leaving the house and joining the boat and going out to sea and it follows him out to the fishing grounds. It's a really evocative thing, you know, it's got me grandad's in there and grandmother and uncle's in there as a small boy, you know, he's only about, must be about 10 year old and the film not even, I don't think. It's, it's a really evocative thing, you know, and I just felt compelled to kind of write some music to it. But as it, as it happened, the original score, the original soundtrack to the actual documentary was written by Ewan McCall. and he's a like, obviously, a folk legend, you know, so it was staggering to kind of to watch that footage and realise that you and had kind of written music about me Granddad, you know what I mean? That was like, bizarre. Um, and I don't think it would have meant that much to me Granddad, to be honest with you, <laughs> I if I kind of spoke to him about it, but it did to me, you know, it was really, really quite impressive. So in the, in the grand scheme of it, I made kind of reference to Ewan McCall's work in it. I ended up sort of writing this full soundtrack to 45 minutes worth of footage that Northeast Film Archive were kind enough to let me get into and and create something you know and that kind of sparked this sort of coastal connection with with the band but at the time it was I was kind of doing it on my own and I thought well I'm if I'm gonna do it live that was the idea I wanted to kind of play this footage on a big screen and and actually do the soundtrack live you know with the band in front of the screen so I had to kind of get a band to do it so Hmm so i pulled that together and it kind of became its its own beast really you know it's a lot of people i think when they discover our music they think that i'm called hectic you know but i kind of don't mind that either because it's something to hide behind you know i'm not really a natural front man really i never was you know like I, i've kind of learned how to do that but i didn't have to use my own name this way you know i could kind of hide behind something so
0: it's a cool name as well i think you'd have possibly had second thoughts if the boat was called Timothy Chaffinch.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think that's pretty good as well. Maybe that's the next side project. Timothy <laughs> Chaffinch.
0: And, and we talked there about your sound a little bit and started this project as a, almost like a folk project, but I wouldn't say for people who haven't maybe heard your music yet and hopefully they'll discover that through listening to this podcast, some people, it's obviously folk tinged, but there's definitely other elements in there. How would you describe your sound?
1: Well, um, I th- I, you're right in saying that it is kind of folk-tinged and it always gets sort of labelled with that, that add-on. And I think that's probably down to... A lot of it's down to kind of the subject matter of the songs. I've always kind of wrote about, like I was saying about Coastline and about the natural world and what about uh, people on whole, just about things that I know, you know? I've always tried to kind of keep it real, you know what I mean? Without sounding, without sounding daft, like it has to kind of mean something. It has to be honest. And I think a lot of it comes from also singing with your accent. So I, my accent's probably quite quite thick compared to a lot of people's. And it's, I can't really get rid of it, but I thought, well, I, I should really just embrace that and as much as I can because it just sounds like me, you know what I mean? So it's got that aspect, That definitely that folk aspect comes, comes in there. And a lot of the songs are kind of more acoustic based, so that kind of leads to that. But I don't know, it's a difficult thing to kind of put your finger on. I've always struggled to kind of pigeonhole, it's a difficult thing to do to pigeonhole yourself, you know. So, I don't know, I mean, a lot of it's kind of soundscape-y. A lot of the first album had more instrumental stuff on that was actually came from that soundtrack stuff that I was talking about earlier, you know, but it's a big mix. It's a big part of everything that I'm kind of influenced by. And that's not just influenced sort of, not just music that I'm influenced by, but kind of everything that's around us, you know what I mean? Other sounds that aren't particularly taken as being sort of musical, you know what I mean? Yeah, in terms of describing the music, it's really difficult, I think. It definitely got a folk tinge, but the first thing we put out was like a nine minute long song, which is probably a bit daft in hindsight. That's been called like a more of like a kraut rock type song. But then the lyrical content was all about like the Fawn Islands and Grace Darling and stuff like that. And now when you hear someone say that, you think, oh, that's a folk song, isn't it? You know what I mean? Because it's about sort of traditional things, so. The, the short answer is I haven't got a clue.
0: <laughs> well, you're right, and it's, and it's probably unfair to pigeonhole you. So just, if anybody's listening, go on, uh, go on to com and have a little browse around. It's all good. Go and have a listen. We'll come to your bird list in a moment, and your bird list does have a few coastal birds on it, but you wrote about another seabird, didn't you, for the, the BTO book that I helped put together called Into the Red.
1: Yeah, yeah, the Arctic Skewer. It was amazing to be asked to do it. I've never been asked to do anything like that before, really. So it was a challenge to kind of write in that way. But um, the tale that I kind of told in the book was when my dad took us fishing when I was when I was younger on a boat from from Craster in Northumberland, and uh, I was probably just getting into kind of wildlife really and starting to recognise birds in particular, you know. So I'd been out before that, and and uh, that was the first time I'd seen gannets, you know, and diving and just kind of blew my mind these enormous birds that you never really I've never saw before because I'd never been out on the on the water, you know, really. Yeah, the Arctic skewer. I mean, the the tale kind of revolves around the fact that I'm, I'm not really sure if I saw it enough. So it was one of those, but it was a definitely a moment in time where I started to kind of take stock of things that were around us and notice things more, you know. And that's kind of what, what the natural world does for me really, you know what I mean? It's kind of an escape and that literally was an escape on out under the water. You know what I mean. So the art obscure comes to symbolise that sort of thing. You know what I mean. Like I feel like I'm sort of escaping into away from kind of the normality of things and seeing things that you wouldn't normally see out of your bedroom window. You know.
0: Absolutely. It's a great story. It's a great page. And I love the, the fact that it's not just about the bird, but it is about that escape. The descriptions of place as well, you know, particularly Craster and the smells, the smogery, you know, the coming out of the harbour. It's, it's just brilliant. Anyway, if you haven't read it, pick up your copy or buy one from the BTO website, cause all of the money goes to helping red listed birds. Okay. That was my little advertisement there. <laughs> um, right, Aaron, let's get down to business. So, as regular listeners will know, the concept of this podcast is that humanity has somehow failed in its quest to prevent a global environmental disaster of unprecedented proportions. Not too ridiculous, really. And you, somehow, thanks to some dodgy off screen and barely thought through lazy plot device, have the ability to save five bird species from certain extinction. It's a tough task, choosing five, but let's get to it. So tell us about bird number one. Bird
1: number one. One, one. Bird number one, I'm more than kind of just feeling obliged to choose it. I really do love the bird. It's obviously the gannet, so uh, that's number one. You know, above all, it's got that kind of connection. It, it symbolizes something more for me. It sort of encapsulates sort of my heritage, but more than that, it's kind of, it is what I am as a person, you know what I mean, without sounding too sort of off the wall, but uh Obviously, there's that Hector Gannet connection, and that's where I kind of initially connect with the gannet. But, um, yeah, they they have become a kind of a symbol of my heritage and what I'm kind of about as a person. Like I spoke about just before that, the first time I saw them was diving. So it was this, like, spectacular instance, you know, in the North Sea. And I would never, ever get sick of seeing a gannet diving because it's just one of the most impressive things you'll ever ever witness if you're lucky enough. But uh, we actually went, me and the band, when we were invited over to the US to play, we went to the Connecticut Audubon Society um, and we managed somehow to time it perfectly. There was like a two-week window where the gannets were traveling through the Long Island Sound. While we were there, I saw all sorts of birds that I'd never seen before, you know? It was like, I saw bald eagle, I saw uh, blue jays, red cardinals and all sorts, you know what I mean? Ospreys were just like abundant, but I think I was the most excited I had been the whole time when I saw gannets diving, you know, like uh, they're one of those birds that you just you kind of don't get over. And they're just like gorgeous to look at, you know what I mean? This brilliant white and then you get up close to the eye and I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, you've, you've sold them. I mean, gannets would be in my top five without a doubt all right. for all the reasons you've said. They're just fantastic birds. You know, I've got a connection to the coast as well. I've mentioned in this podcast before, we've got a caravan at Walkworth and you know i can like you say you can't get sick watching yeah. them dive and doing what they do you know plummeting hitting the water at 100 miles an hour yeah. and they, they're just so huge these big cruciform shapes like going across the water and then just the way they fold their wings in and
1: i found that everyone was like it didn't matter who they were i mean a lot of the band not, they're not it's kind of well they're probably not as enthusiastic as i am about these sort of things but Everyone was kind of blown away when they were watching the gannets diving in the water. And I was like, well, that's that's it, isn't it? And the fact that we saw them, there was a two-week window. I was like, well, that's a sign, isn't it? They're obviously, it was meant to be. The gannets have kind of made that happen for us, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> They've
0: definitely become your uh, totem bird, that's that's yeah. for sure. When are, when are you going to start, like, just purely wearing white with a little flash of black or a tiny hint of blue?
1: It has crossed my mind. I don't know, I think the lads are pretty reluctant to kind of... Uh, Take us up on that, you know.
0: Yeah, I I would listen to the lads on this one, I think. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I thought about doing for this podcast specifically was coming up for a song for each bird. And I was thinking about the gannet and if if the gannet was a song, which song would it be? And I think the best one that I I came up with was a a Rufus Wainwright song, Respectable Dive. But actually, it's not just respectable. It is actually... (laughs) awesome and you know it is it is like you say one of nature's great spectacles oh man
1: i just think it's like it's the most graceful and ferocious thing you know what i mean like it's like it just looks effortless and it's just like like you say it's one of the most unbelievable things to watch you know something just like dropping out of the sky this like arrow hitting the water you know it's just
0: and when they're in big groups doing it how don't they hit each other
1: yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Once and it's just the fact that they can see where they're going, you know what I mean? And hit the water.
0: When you see this footage of like, you know, underwater cameras, you know, the, the Attenborough stuff, you know, yeah. you see them all and and hitting the water and they're just totally avoiding each other. That that they're just awesome. Couple of couple of little facts about about gannets. Britain and Ireland hosts two thirds of the world's breeding population. Over 180,000 pairs, which is pretty cool. You know, that two thirds of the entire world's breeding population is around our shores. They've obviously been hit really hard, haven't they, by avian flu? I was trying yeah. to look up stats on that and I asked last night because I know they've been devastated on places, obviously, on our east coast you know bass rock and benton cliffs and but i couldn't actually find any any figures but i mean it's it's tens of thousands i think that have been lost isn't it but it's it's a bit of a difference from the the dangers they faced in the past you know in the 1500s and up until not you know not even 100 years ago you know people were harvesting them for food particularly the young googas, the yeah. the youngins especially on the the scottish islands that would St Kilda you know they would climb rock faces and terrifying feats of trying to prove how manly they are to try and get some some food at world war ii i was reading as well they were shot in shetland shipped to london and sold as highland goose
1: i've it's- heard them called that before yeah and i didn't realize where that come come from highland goose yeah i definitely i've definitely read that somewhere
0: another side project for you there
1: pick the gannet and the highland goose Yeah. <laughs>
0: amazing birds and um, it, obviously it was a it was a shoe-in to be on your list today right let's hear about your your second choice bird number two, two, two,
1: two. bird number two i chose the oyster catcher for this mainly based on its its call in north shields right on the mouth of the time you get a lot of them down on the black middens and it's just the most evocative sound when you hear it you know especially on a foggy day like this morning it was unbelievably foggy i've been there, down there today uh, and hearing an oyster catcher through the mist is just like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up you know um, but they're just like, they're such a comforting comforting sight you know what I mean you're kind of guaranteed to see one or hear one at least when you're down there yeah and you know they just kind of innocently go about their business and the other day actually I saw one pull out a, like a huge worm from the sand and it was mobbed by these gulls and the gulls got it, tug in and was like I've never kind <laughs> of wanting to get involved more you know what i mean i was ready to like run down on the beach and have a fight with some goals but uh and that they're, they're, they're so you know what it is when you see them in the countryside for some reason they look absolutely enormous to me and i don't know why that is i, I thought they were different birds for a long time you know what i mean i don't know whether that's just because you haven't got that comparison with like a herring gull that's sitting next to it you know what i mean that like you do with the course but uh yeah, so oyster catchers had to go on there basically just because they reminders of home so much, you know, it's just, it's the sound of home.
0: Obviously, hear a lot of car alarms around your way. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that they're, they're, they're great birds and the black and white, which is obviously another northeastern connection. And I know what you mean yeah. about that, the, the fact that when you see them somewhere else, you know, and I know they've been inland for, for a long time, they've obviously moved over. Decades, haven't they? Through the river valleys, gravel pits, moorlands, and now, like, they're on factories and school roofs, any flat roof you can. There's a possible uh, site for a oyster catcher. I think there's something like 28% expansion in their range, but they still, you know, because they are coastal birds, they do still seem out of place. The size thing's not something I've thought about before, but uh, I can imagine what you mean. Yeah, um,
1: it is. I just think that, I don't know, maybe it's the black and white against the greenery rather than the kind of grayness of the of the sea but yeah they've always kind of stood out like they just look huge I don't know why maybe it's just me no but maybe I'm looking at the wrong birds (laughs) maybe it's not an oyster catcher at all
0: (laughs) but yeah no maybe it is like an optical illusion thing like you say that the different colors of the uh, of the landscape who knows they love a cockle though and they won't get many of them inland, but yeah, the, the love a cockle and oyster catcher and ragworms, obviously, what you were talking about there when yeah, you were mm-hmm. gonna when you were gonna fight the gulls. Oyster catcher has come up once on the podcast once before. Jill Lewis had a had a story about oyster catchers, and I mentioned on them, then, but I'll tell you because it's I think just really impressive. An oyster catcher can take a cockle every seventy two seconds.
1: It's very impressive.
0: It's it's no mean feat, you know. They're they're obviously uh, very impressive predators.
1: I wouldn't mess with one, not, especially not if I was a cockle. You wouldn't want to be a cockle in that instance, would you? Absolutely not.
0: In Wales, and I, I'm not exactly sure when it was, wartime, presumably, uh, there was a big cull of oyster catchers because they were trying to protect the cockle cockle supplies. So they, oh. they culled 1,000 oyster catchers. And cockles' numbers didn't change at all. So it really? It didn't really affect them. So, so yeah, hands-off oyster catchers, they're not taking our cockles uh, to any significant number. One thing I didn't realise until I read about it in—I normally use uh, Mark Cocker's *Birds Britannica* to educate myself for for these podcasts, but I've been using because I thought it was appropriate for yourself the Northumbria Bird Atlas, which is a lot of facts and figures about all the species, and it's a it's a mighty tome and it's a great book. But I read in here that in the winter time, Lindisfarne hosts fifty percent of the country's wintering population of oyster catchers, and I didn't know that.
1: Fifty percent.
0: Aye. Wow! Yeah, I know you're a, a man with a connection to the to the coastline and to Holy Island, especially. You know, you sing yeah. about it in a, in a couple of your songs. And yeah, fifty percent of oyster catchers end up on Lindisfarne over the winter. There you go.
1: That's special, isn't it? That's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, and some of some of the birds that we get in the UK in winter time come from Norway and Ireland and the Faroes. And yeah, fifty percent of them go to Holy Island.
1: Pilgrimage to the island. That's what that is. Absolutely.
0: So I was trying to think of a song for the oyster catcher, and I was, you know, initially thinking, okay, they do sound a bit like car alarms or sirens. So I did think sirens by Pearl Jam, bit of an obvious choice, but I've gone for digging in the dirt by Peter Gabriel in, nice. instead.
1: I like it. Yeah, I miss like
0: that. Right. What we're we going to talk about next?
1: Bird number three. 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 <laughs> the next one I chose was the Swift. I always get a kind of huge rush when I see the first Swift of the year. Never, it never doesn't feel right until we've seen the Swift. You know, and I kind of like flicks a switch inside where you go right, okay. I know what's happening now. <laughs> on a on a kind of I don't know, maybe more of a kind of spiritual level. It's I don't know if it signifies new life or rebirth, and you know, definitely kind of the return of summer, and that's kind of what the meaning was. And it's another bird that every time I see one, I think, God, that's massive. I don't remember them being that big. I don't know whether it's just because maybe they they arrive later than house martins and swallows and stuff like that, but they always seem absolutely enormous when you see them, you know what I mean? I don't know if it's just like, I just forget how big they are, but yeah, I think they're just amazing birds. And is it right that they can't take off off the ground? Or am I just making that up?
0: No, I think if they get grounded, then they're in big trouble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I believe
0: the design of their wings, you know, they're, like you say, they're, they, they look huge. They've got these massive wings that yeah. are built for one thing, and that's being on the wing and, you know, they fly for years without stopping and all of that stuff. But, yeah, I think a grounded swift is in uh, big trouble. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: When I was on holiday in Spain, we were watching swifts above where we was staying and then uh, noticed that there was this falcon following them uh, and realised that we were watching a hobby chasing them. So that was, like, yeah. unbelievable. And you know? it was, like, a, just this big aerial, like, dogfight, you know, going on above where. it was unbelievable to watch. I oh. saw it again in Yorkshire, actually, when we went to Massum in Yorkshire, and that was just... That was unbelievable. I kind of wish I chose Hobby now. I'm talking not, not much about him, but
0: uh. we've had Hobby a couple of times. Nick Agersson and Will Rose are big Hobby fans. And what's not to like about a a little dinky Falcon that wears red pants? Isn't it?
1: it is the red pants, like that's the icing on the cake, isn't it? Really? Absolutely, absolutely. No, they're,
0: they're great. But I've never seen them chasing Swift. That would be incredible. And, and Swifts actually. I think we've talked about swifts more than any other bird on this podcast. And I think it is like you said, that's what they mean to people. You know, I'm, I'm starting to believe they're even more popular than Taylor Swift, you know, the (laughs) amount of people that are into swifts and not to hark on about it too much again, but into the red Richard maybe talks about that. Exactly what you've just described, you know, waiting for the first swift to come back and then. You know, as a child, he would he would sort of wish for them to come and, like, hold on to his blazer collar to, like, wish good luck to the Swifts. <laughs> and then, you know, once he saw his first Swift, he felt settled for the rest of the, the summer because,
1: you know... Really, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was just that, that kind of, like, everything's going to be all right now. The Swifts are back.
1: It's a weird thing. That I think birds have that kind of connection with us anyway, you know? Like, they're often thought about as kind of signifying things, aren't they? You know what I mean? I don't know whether that's just because they're up in the air above us. They're kind of these sort of ethereal beings, you know, that kind of, probably through folklore and tradition, they've kind of always had to mean something to people because they didn't understand them fully, you know. I think that's that's what's special about birds, you know what I mean, that they're always there. And the return of something like a swift kind of signifies something in people's minds, you know. That's like, a, it's a special quality for, for anything to have, I think.
0: That's been a message loud and clear through the Talking to people on the podcast, it's what pe- birds mean to people, and it is that attaching emotional significance to birds, particularly birds that go away and come back. Yeah. And again, in that in Richard Maybe, who's a celebrated nature writer, in his piece on the swift, which is now on the red list for the first time, um, so it was in into the red. He, I'm going to just quote him from the from the book directly. They come closer to us than almost any other bird. They nest in our houses, but not for one moment do swifts ever seem to be cosily part of our world. I'd never even thought about that before. You know, you put nest boxes up, you have nests in your garden, but actually swifts come into the house. You know, they come under the roof and they nest in your attics and, yeah. you know, in holes in your house. And I'd never thought about that proximity. But then again, you know, they're never part of our world. They're just otherworldly. We keep saying that on here. But, um, you know, so that that dichotomy is is really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's a It's a kind of... It's another thing to kind of put your finger on. I find it difficult to kind of talk on those terms about what certain things mean to us, you know what I mean? But that's that is yeah, you're definitely right. The kind of they kind of share our world but don't, you know what I mean? Like I found that during lockdown where we were kind of allowed like one hour's exercise, you know, me and my partner Lee were trying to time it so that we were out earlier than everybody else would be out, you know. So we're getting up really early in the morning and heading out and it was like a the wildlife just seemed to be just carry on as normal. You know, what I mean, the world was kind of falling apart, but just the the sand mountains at the cliffs of Tymouth and the fulmars and the, the deer that were coming out onto the streets and stuff like were kind of thriving. And, and when because there was no people there, you know, what I mean, it was like yeah, they don't need us at all, really. And it's a it's a sort of humbling, grounding kind of thing to to experience. I think that's that is what kind of being outdoors kind of does for me. Is you just kind of feel part of it you know what i mean the rest of it doesn't really care whether you're there or not i think that's uh yeah the swift kind of encapsulates that really you almost feel like they're no better than us as well i think you just kind of feel like they know exactly what's going on they haven't got a clue
0: i'm sure that they're superior to us in every single way <laughs> yeah i've got no doubt about that in the in this northumbria bird atlas they were talking about events like huge gatherings of like massive numbers of swifts that sort of appear in the skies around you know, certain weather conditions, particularly thunderstorms, there was several thousand counted at one time at Cresswell in 1964, six thousand in Berwick in 1987 and uh, two and a half thousand at Drewridge in 2010 even but, you know, could you imagine seeing six thousand Swifts
1: over your house? No, that's the thing, isn't it? I can't. Amazing. Unbelievable.
0: A song for the Swifts, my Swift song is Boys of Summer by Don Henley. It's a guilty pleasure of mine, it's a cheesy song, but I love it and I will fight anybody who tells me it's anything other than brilliant. And it, it makes me always think of Swifts because they're here for the summer, they come for three months, 100 days, and then they're gone.
1: Perfect.
0: I'm chuffed that we managed to think of new things to say about the Swift. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's gone better than I thought. That's brilliant. Right, let's crack on Aaron. let's talk about bird
1: number four. Bird number four. Uh, well, I'll talk about the kestrel here, I think. I mean, I love birds of prey. When you get into kind of birds, they're like they're just cool, aren't they? You know, I mean, birds of prey. But the kestrel is kind of, I suppose, one that you see most often, or particularly where, where I live, you do, kind of abundant. But I never get tired of watching them, really. I, and I think because it's virtually motionless for a lot of the time, you can focus in on it. And I find that quite a therapeutic thing to do, to, to focus on a kestrel. I kind of notice something different about it every time. And I, I, Well, it's not something I've kind of spoke about much, but anxiety on a whole is kind of something that I, I have definitely experienced. And that sort of thing, watching a kestrel for that long and just kind of seeing it going about its business is like a huge relief. As soon as you kind of can put your mind on something else that has got nothing to do with you, you know what I mean? Like you're just kind of observing it. All that, all those kind of feelings, just sort of, everything's kind of all right once you've seen a Kestrel, you know. I mean? <laughs> um, but they're always kind of there. I know that Cody, the, the bass player on the band, said before, it's like every journey to go anywhere in the van, you know, with the band, it's like every 10 minutes, I'm just sitting in the front going, Kestrel, you know, because there's one hovering above the motorway, but it's just like it's kind of watching over the journey and saying, you know, you'll be all right, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's a funny thing, but, yeah, Kestrel's got to go up there. And, uh, again, they're just beautiful birds, aren't they? You know what I mean? Those faces are kind of, like, absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love love a Kestrel. One of the very first T-shirts I did when I used to do T-shirts and things like that for fundraising and had a Kestrel on, it just said, Kestrel's hell Yeah because they're, they're kind of overlooked. You know, you kind of, you focus on the, the poster boys of the, the birds of prey world, you know, the golden eagles or ospreys yeah. or or even sparrowhawks and goshawks. But kestrels, that, and I don't know why, whether it's because you see them all the time, whether it's because they've got that connotation with being, you know, like from way back when they were like the uh, poor falconer's bird, you know, not even a good yeah. mouser, you know, they were the, the servant's bird or the knave's bird weren't they? And, and then obviously that that connection with working class through a kestrel for a knave, the Barry Hines book, and then Kess, the Ken Loach film, you know, So they, I just wonder whether they're seen as like a lowly bird of prey,
1: I think that's spectacular, but I often watch people down at the mouth of the town and stuff. You know, there's there's always one or two that you see when you're walking along the promenade towards the castle at the top, and people will just be walking underneath them, you know, and like not even realizing that they're there, and you feel like going. Would well, you just look up? you know what I mean? Like, it's just. I know it's
0: you know. it's weird, and I know exactly the, the the bits you mean because along the coast there, there's one or two that are very regularly just on the cliffs, and you can just be walking along that part, the pavement on the cliff edge and they can be like you could almost touch them
1: oh yeah just yeah a couple of meters above your head you know what i mean hovering i remember being in uh but again when we were in the over in the states we went to this winery uh up in the hills and it was like abundant with osprey and uh i was just blown away that these it was just loads of ospreys flying around over your head and people weren't bothered you know they were just sitting drinking their wine and stuff and it was like i felt like going around every table going, have you seen that like I don't know. It's a funny thing, but kestrels kind of the same. Yeah, they are seen so often, and I think it's funny that a lot of people, which if I'm stood watching one, a lot of people come over and go, "Oh, what is it?" You know, and you go, "Well, it's obviously it's a kestrel. It's hovering." You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But uh, it's funny that people don't know. I think you know, and that's so you can see them fairly easily if you're lucky. You know what I mean?
0: They're definitely fantastic birds. Obviously, we kind of associate them with motorways and and taking small mammals and and things like that but they have got a little bit of a taste for for birds they will take young birds and small birds young pigeons young game birds they used to be persecuted and shot and trapped in the past and i was reading that in 1995 kestrels decimated little turn chicks in a colony in great yarmouth taking over 200 little turn wow chicks which again you wouldn't think that they do so they're not just cute and cuddly looking either and i mean they're beautiful birds but they're deadly they're again like apex predators yeah
1: i think Um, uh you know the ones i've I've chosen they seem very like ordinary birds but i think that's what i like about them is that they're so kind of accessible you know what i mean
0: but i think that that, you know once you once you delve into them and think about them and and what they mean to you they're not ordinary birds at all you know you know not definitely either. definitely not i was thinking about a song for you know if the kestrel was a was a song what would it be there's obviously lots of songs about wind and you know that they, they've got that name name the wind hover haven't they Or the the wind mm-mm, you know which it's a family show so i can't say that but uh, <laughs> so yeah i was thinking do we go blown in the wind by bob dylan well they don't get blown around they're perfectly still in the wind i couldn't possibly go wind beneath my wings by Bette midler um, and <laughs> But I'm gonna go ride the wild wind by Queen because they do ride it, you know. They they although that's perfectly still on it, you know. They they do that thing where they can just keep their head millimeters still, you know, whilst their wings just flicker in the wind. So they they they're absolute aerial experts. And Mark Cocker, who I quote loads on this podcast because of his book, um, says that a kestrel hovering is as inspiring a vision of avian perfection as a peregrine in its headlong dive. Or a fishing gannet so there you go we cover gannet for you peregrine for me and then kestrels as inspiring as them at this point aaron i'm gonna just stop proceedings and we're gonna do my zero punches pulled question zero punches
1: pulled
0: it's a question that you're unlikely to be asked in any other interview you do and my question for you is this if you were Simon Cowell and you were putting together a bird band, which species would you choose?
1: Well, I suppose it depends on the type of band. I would probably... We're going to base it on, like, a four-piece. I think your band can be any,
0: anything you want. Oh, OK.
1: Well, I think the front man, I would probably I would probably choose a Stalin. I think they'd be really animated enough for a front man, you know. it would be interesting to watch. And I think he's a good singer as well. Absolutely. He probably writes all his own stuff, so he's... Uh, He's going at the front. The drummer, you'd have to choose a woodpecker, I suppose, wouldn't you? Because he literally he literally drums. I nearly said, our oh, turn, because I know that that's Jack, our drummer's favourite bird, because he refers to them as the bird with the slick back hairstyle. <laughs> it doesn't really look like they have a slick back hairstyle either, but, you know, Jack's a special kind of person. On another note, I need to call him out on something, actually, and make it public that he actually said this. Last night, he gave us a lift home and uh, he said, you know, I've got six gears in this car and I never knew that. And he's been driving that car for two years. <laughs> and I was like, in all that time, did you not wonder what the little six was on the gear stick? And he was like, well, well, you, you know, you have to keep your eyes on the road when you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think Woodpecker, Woodpecker for drummer, because, you know, he's got rhythm. Who else do we need? We need a bass player.
0: You need a bass player and a, and a lead guitarist. Well, Bittens don't they do that really low? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a a Bitten would be a nice just in the in the background, understated, bassy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's a good. That's a good choice. Bitten's going in as bass player, and then uh, the guitarist. Well, what's got the longest fingers? It would have to be like some sort of eagle, wouldn't it? Probably, um, like a white-tailed sea eagle on guitar.
0: Excellent. Like, uh, I love a bullfinch. And I've always imagined because they're chunky, sort of pictured them as a kind of like Russell from Gorillaz on drums, you know, a, a big chunky bullfinch at the back. But yeah, I think I think the bass player has to be holding it all together and you know understated. So yeah, yeah Bitten's a good choice. I was thinking maybe like a Gadwall or some sort of other understated but excellent, excellent. Oh, he bird. would
1: he would go on the keyboards, I think. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if I had a keyboard player. could stretch to a keyboard player then.
0: <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm glad you picked Stalin because Stalin would definitely have been in my band. I'd have probably put them on lead guitar. Would you? And I would have probably had a slightly... Because, I mean, they're great. Get Don't get me wrong, stunning. Look cool. You know, they've got quiffs going on. They make loads of great sounds. And like you say, they might write all their own stuff, but they're partial to a cover version as well. But I would, I would want a, like a really stupidly flamboyant front man. I think like a great crested grebe, conjures up that sort of bowy kind of. Yeah, I seen that. Uh, flamboyance. Right. <laughs> enough of this tomfoolery. Let's get back to business.
1: Bird number five. five, five. I chose, I chose the eider. The eider, do kind of symbolises the northeast coast for me. You know, the obviously up here as you'll know, the clo- little name is the Cuddy duck, which I think comes from some Cuthbert. It kind of. Looked after them in some way, he kind of like championed Ida ducks. They're black and white again, so obviously it's, uh, it's, there's a northeast connection there, but yeah, they kind of, they symbolize the northeast course, really and everything I love about it. And they just seem kind of hard as nails, you know, like the most sturdiest thing out there. When you see them in kind of choppy seas, you know, they're just kind of, In fact, the Aida, I think that would be... If the apocalypse is going to be a flood, then the Aida is the ark that I would put the rest of the birds on <laughs> because it's just like the steadiest thing on the on the sea. Yeah, I love them and I never get sick of hearing their... Uh, Ooh! Anytime you go to uh, Amble, they're always there, you know. It's just... Uh, they epitomise the coast for me and that's, that's why I love them. Yeah, it's home. It's kind of... It's just the familiar lovely sight and sound you
0: know it is and we've talked about ida's once before i think only once it was uh, alex bond who described them as canonically the best duck he's a big ida fan and and will argue with anybody that they are the best duck in the world and he described that sound as uh, being like a northern granny when you tell them you've met a nice boy
1: (laughs) definitely all reason to love them then and, and associate them with, with the northeast again, you know.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned St Cuthbert there and, and the fact that we refer to them up here as Cuddy ducks. And I think it does come from St Cuthbert, that nickname, because he came and had his hermitage on the Farn Islands in the 7th century, didn't he? But And I think some people refer to the to the Ida duck as being the, the first bird offered any sort of protection, because he took them, looked after them, I think, when he was on the Farns. The numbers did drop in World War II like a lot of things did because people were looking for food and they were taking their eggs and used them for shooting practice but then increased again in the 50s and 60s when we decided to leave them alone for a bit but yeah they're, they're great and like you say sturdy they're always there they're dependable they're beautiful you know that that black and white plumage with that little smudge of green And whether there's, uh, I mean, engineers maybe need to look at, you know, how they designed the bullet train on the the Kingfisher's beak so that when it went through tunnels, it didn't have that sonic boom. Maybe they need to look at boats based on... Based on the shape of an eider duck. Who knows? But yeah, that noise when you go up to Amble and you're, you're sitting there with your chips on the on the harbour there and they're all just in there doing that, ooh, Frankie Howard thing they do. They're just, they're, they're great. Frankie Howard, oh, it
1: is Frankie Howard. God, I've <laughs> never made
0: that connection. Oh, I hope I haven't ruined eider ducks for you now. <laughs> no,
1: not at all. you made them even
0: better. One thing we haven't talked about them and my song title for an eider duck is based on their on their feathers and the fact that we take them for our duvets and our coats and, and all this. And, uh, you know, that can be done sustainably, I believe. But yeah, I've, for this song, if they were a song, I've gone for Down Down by Status Quo. nice Right then, that is your five birds. Thanks so much. Those are the five birds that you would bundle onto the imaginary ark, or as we've discussed, you would throw onto the back of an eider duck to save them from the impending environmental Armageddon but you've now got to choose one the best of all to be your companion and spirit guide as you navigate this desolate wasteland i suspect i know what it's going to be but which one is it
1: got to go for the gannet haven't I? you know what i mean i
0: think you have it's it's not just a bird to you it means so much more so yeah you and you and the gannet off into the sunset to to save humanity i think is uh, is how we'll picture that Thanks so much for coming on today, Aaron. Before you go, tell us what you're up to, what you've got coming soon.
1: Coming soon? Well, we've got an album out in the new year. that comes out in January. It's called The Land Belongs to Us, which is kind of like an environmental title, I suppose. So it kind of links in there. Yeah, that's out in January. So you can you can pre-order it now at, uh, at and Go to the bandcamp site and get everything everything on there. We're actually doing a, a bundle that includes tickets to a unannounced secret gig on an island in Northumberland. So that'll be really good. So there's lots happening around that, really. There'll be loads of gigs getting announced and stuff like that. But uh, it's all exciting. Excellent.
0: Well, good luck with it. But yeah, please, folks, do go and check out Hector Ganner on the website. Have a listen. Wrap your ears around it and enjoy. Well, thanks again.
1: Lush. Cheers, Keith.
0: Thanks again. Take care, man. See you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, folks. Do go and check out Hector Gannett on the website, HectorGannett.com. And thanks very much for listening. Do join me for my next episode of Golden Grenades, which will hopefully be out in a couple of weeks. Until then, bye for now.
1: Yeah. You don't fear the